Okay, we are we are in in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter eight, reading from verse sixteen, and we'll pick up where we left off last time. Let's read again in verse sixteen, Matthew chapter eight, verse sixteen. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he cast out the spirits, the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were ill. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So last time that I spoke, I, I touched on the point of, um, of the demon possession and the things that were happening to people in that time and, and things that happen to people today. And, and uh, since then, I've, I, we've prayed for several people, and, and uh, if you didn't hear that message, that's of course up on my website, but we dealt with, with that passage of, of, of demons and influence of demons, and we had also uh, uh, discussed Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, uh, the Gadarene demoniac in that context. But today we're going to look at something a little bit different, and that's in the... In the end of, of verse 16, and it says, And he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, that he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. He healed all who were ill. You know, believers have all sorts of different views about healing. Some believers feel that everybody we pray for if there's faith, they will be healed. Other people believe that, well, you know, there's no, no use in really praying for them because if it's God's will, they're going to be healed anyway. And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this passage, passage justice, but I'll give you my understanding. And, and I've been active in the church, not, not as a spectator, but as one who is active in the church for almost 30 years. And, and uh, I think that, that I've seen a lot of different perspectives. We've been in all sorts of different churches, in, in, uh, and, and we've seen all sorts of different things. And let me just say that at some point, God has got to stop healing a person, or else the person would live forever, right? Would live physically forever. So if you concede that, that people are, under, are going to undergo a physical death, then you've got to concede at some point he's going to stop healing them of their physical ailments. Unless, I guess, they, they, they go out in a plane crash or something. But even then, I guess God could raise them up if he wanted to. Um, so it, it, at some point it ends. If you look in the Old Testament, you will find early on, Adam through Noah, people lived really quite long you'll find that, that, that people lived really quite a long time, many hundreds of years, and you'll say, well, how can that be? Well, there, there actually is scientific evidence that there can be these sort of, of, of long lives within the beginning of a certain species. And, and uh, let me just make a plug for a book called Who Was Adam? Who Was Adam was a book that, that's written by a... Uh, 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 Fazel, Rana, and Hugh Ross. 
And it is that book that my colleague at Rice, Rick Smalley, two days before his death, said to me that he had just finished reading that book and he felt that if the scientific community read that book, 50% of them would become Christians. Now that's quite a profound statement. And, and uh, Rick Smalley wasn't known his entire life for being a fanatic Christian. And, and so he had, he had a certain perspective, but he felt it was that well done. I've recently finished that book, and I actually think it's, it, it's very good, and I'm, I'm buying a whole bunch of those books to send a, around, around to a bunch of scientists around the country. In fact, I've already sent out the first batch, because I, I think it is quite profound. And, and you, will, you will see in that book, if you read it, Who Was Adam?, that, that uh, evidence for a really quite long lifetime within a species is possible. But in any case, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says that God is now going to limit lives to around 120 years. In Gen- Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, because in a sense he was tired of striving, striving with the evilness of man. The older you get, the more capacity for evil you have. You will become more proficient in evil as you get older. You will become more proficient in scheming and in ways of planning evil the older you get. And you can see why God may have wanted to limit that. But then again in Psalm chapter 90, if you turn over to to Psalm chapter 90, you see a further shortening of lifespans. In Psalm chapter 90, this this is discussed. And this is interestingly discussed by Moses. This is a, 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 a psalm of Moses, a psalm written by Moses. Moses was a man who lived to be 120 himself. But what he wrote was, in verse 10 of Psalm 90, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. So, and, and, and keep, keep, uh, keep that page open in Psalm 90. So you see that... that Basically, this has remained about the same. We live 70 or 80 years. I mean, if, if, if you're really doing well, you touch into the, to, into the 90s. But basically, that's where we are. I think that, that because of medication, we, we might be able to live a little bit more comfortably into that, that age span. And no doubt, because of certain things that influence us today that didn't influence them back then, uh, certain chemicals that, that we may be ingesting that we don't know that they're bad for us, but at some point we'll find out that that, 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 that may help to compensate. But that's, that's about where we are, 70 to 80 years. That's about all we've got. So, in the context of healing, there comes a time when somebody's going to die, so God's not going to heal forever, right? Don't, don't we have to at least concede that point? Even if we say, well, God, you know, we can in faith walk that, that, that God's going to heal people. When Jesus was ministering, there's no doubt that there were things there that were supernatural and extra miraculous at that time. And in fact, that's a scriptural term. Uh, uh, Extra miraculous was indeed happening at that time. And if you look at, for example, the next psalm, Psalm chapter 90, and if you commit this psalm to memory, and this is one of the psalms that I've committed to memory because I think it's really a powerful time, a powerful psalm, but in Psalm 91, verse 3, it says, For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from deadly pestilence. Verse 6. This is Psalm 91, verse 6. Of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. So He delivers us from all of this. Now look in verse 10. 
No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. So there are promises like this in the Scriptures that we can take and we can meditate on, uh, on them and we can call them as promises for ourselves. But there is going to come a day when people die. And I think that, that if, if you walk in this realm of praying for people that are sick, you will be challenged with this sometime. And I think it is a reasonable challenge from people, people in the world toward us as believers. And the challenge will be this. Okay, if you can pray, if you as a Christian can pray and heal people, why don't you go to the hospital and start praying for people? Why don't you go to MD Anderson? To the, to the floor where they put the terminally ill patients who only have less than three months to live. Why don't you go there, to that floor, and start praying for people? And I think that that is, that's, that's a challenge that, that's certainly valid. If we have something that can raise up every time, every time that we have enough faith, or three or four of us can go and have enough faith to pray for anybody, in any situation, and let's just say, okay, we'll concede that if they're 70 to 80 to 90, you know, we're not going to pray for them. But everybody under 70, we're going to pray for, and we can trust that they'd be raised up. Let's go ahead and do it. We say, well, no, this is for the glory of God. Oh, you'll get a lot of glory for God, because after one day, I guarantee you, after one day of those people popping up from their beds and going home, you'll have every movie, every TV camera in Houston will be on you at MD Anderson coming out. And you can give all the glory you want to Jesus. Just give it all to Him. And then lots of people will be converted. And the reason we don't want to walk in that is because, from my experience, not everyone we pray for is healed, in my experience. In my experience, I have never met anyone, anyone, and I've met a lot of godly people. I've never met anyone that everyone they prayed for was healed. What Jesus was doing was a super miraculous thing. That all that were coming to Him were being delivered and healed of their diseases as well. There was something special happening at that time. But if we never pray for anyone, we will never see the amazing things. If we never pray for anyone. And I have prayed for a lot of people in my life, and some of them have gotten healed, and some of them haven't. Some people that I pray for to be healed, even as I'm praying for them, I get a sense that they're not going to be healed. I really feel it's the Holy Spirit's revealing that. Nevertheless, I pray for them. You say, well, why do you do that? Well, look in, look in 2 Kings chapter 8. In 2 Kings chapter 8. So if you hit Kings, 1 Kings, go to 2 Kings. If you, hit, if you find Chronicles back there, go back a few books. And you'll look for 2 Kings chapter 8. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, Elisha was a very active prophet in Israel in this chapter and at this time. And the people that, that Elisha prayed for, they got healed. And Elisha happened to be visiting Damascus. Now, Damascus was not part of Israel. And the king of Damascus was very sick at that time. And the king of Damascus had a great respect for Elisha, knowing that he was a man of God. 
And so the king of Damascus sent his servant to Elisha and to inquire, am I going to live from this sickness or am I destined to die? And look in verse 7 of, of 2 Kings chapter 8. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was, was sick and it was told him saying, the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, take a gift in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying, Will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing from Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and he stood before him, that is Elijah, and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You will surely recover. But the Lord has shown me, that he will certainly die. Isn't that interesting? So Elisha says, go tell him he's going to recover, but he's going to die. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Why would the prophet say, go tell him he's going to recover, but he's surely going to die? Well, first of all, we know that the next day he died. But Elisha's word to him is, you will recover. Now, we could take this as, You know, there's no use in walking up to somebody who's sick and in bed and you have a sense that they're going to die and say, oh, the Lord's told me you're going to die. I think that that's probably not the best thing to do. Alright? If the Lord reveals certain things to you, it doesn't mean you always have to share it. You can... You don't have to share it. Now, this may... The context of this may have been a bit different in that... Hazael went back and the next day killed the king himself. Took the blanket, dipped it in water and covered it over his face. So maybe he would have survived this sickness had Hazael not killed him the next day. Maybe that's what Elisha was was getting at. Nevertheless, Elisha didn't say, oh, well, tell him you're going to be dead by tomorrow. Elisha said, just go back and tell him he's going to be all right. Look in, in 2 Samuel. So if you, if you turn back a few books, you'll hit 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel ver, cha, chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. The prophet Nathan says to David concerning David's son. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. However, because of this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan says, your child, David, is going to die. Now look what David does. He begins to fast and pray on behalf of the child. And in verse 21, when the child finally does die, David explains to his servants why he fasted and prayed. He says, then he said to his servants in verse 21, what is this thing that you have, his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? He said, while the child was alive, you fasted and wept, But when the child died, you rose and ate food. So that's what his servant said to him. And he responded, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he's died, why should I fast? So you see, even though David received a word from the prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord that your child will die, David fasted and prayed for that child thinking that with this fast and with this prayer, God may relent. That means He may turn and heal this child. And that is why we pray. 
Even if you have the sense that this person's not going to make it, pray anyway. Pray that God would spare them. Pray that God would have mercy on them. And then leave it up to the Lord. But God has called us to pray for people. And if you never pray, you will never see the glory of God. And I'll give you an instance. I've talked about it before. The greatest instance in my life where it was really quite amazing was this woman who had come. I was in graduate school. I was newly married to Shireen and a, a, a postdoc in the, in the department who worked right across the hall from me and they lived right across the parking lot from us as well, had come to this country because his wife couldn't bear children. He had been married about 15 years and he really came to this country so his wife could visit American doctors and the American doctors said to his wife, you won't bear a child. I mean, they looked at her case, they analyzed it, they said, you won't bear a child. And for some reason... When I went to his house and he told me the story, I looked at her and I said, if you come to church, the elders will pray for you and you will have a child. And I have no idea why I said that. You know, I'm generally pretty careful about my statements because they can catch up with you. And, and uh, so then I, I, I went the next Sunday, picked him up, brought him to church. The elders prayed for her and two weeks later she was pregnant. She gave birth to a baby girl from... Then he went, he did a second postdoc at Berkeley. She gave birth to a baby boy when, and, and she went back to India with two children. I mean, God does heal. God does things that are special at times. He does minister in that way. And this is why we pray. But it was a special time. Look in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 19. This specialness, this, th- these extraordinary miracles even extended to the, the apostles. And there was an instance, it says, in, in, that, that Peter, that, that Peter would, would walk and if his shadow so much as hit a sick person lying on the side of the road, it would heal them. That's how extraordinary the miracles were early on in the church. And that was in, in Acts chapter 5. But now in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So it doesn't say God was, God, God was uh, uh, performing miracles, but extraordinary miracles. This was an extraordinary time, a different sort of time. So that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out. So you could just get Paul's handkerchief and carry it over and bring it to a sick person, and they were healed. So there were extraordinary miracles at this time in the church. Did those extraordinary miracles extend throughout Paul's life? Well, let's look in 1 Timothy. So turn over a few books. If you've gone past Hebrews, you've gone too far. It's before Hebrews. You'll find 1 Timothy. And, and uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in 1 Timothy... God called Timothy his own son. Now, it wasn't his physical son, but he called him his son because he was so close to Timothy. Timothy was his right-hand man. Timothy was the one who he trained to be pastor of this church, and he loved Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says to him, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent stomach ailments. Look what he tells Timothy. You're going to need to drink a little wine for this stomach problem you have. Well, come on, Paul. Send a handkerchief. I mean, you really love this guy. Just send a handkerchief or something. You know, you'd, you'd think for a stomach ailment, a few threads would do. 
just, or just speak the word. There was a time in the church where there were extraordinary miracles. You will hear stories where there were extraordinary miracles being poured out on the mission field. And that happens, and it happens today. But those same missionaries come back, and it's a different environment, and God is working differently in that place, and things happen differently at that time. In fact, there's a verse in in one of the Gospels, and it says, And Jesus could not do many miracles in that place because of the lack of faith. And it doesn't say that He did not, it says that He could not because of the lack of faith. So even in Jesus' time, there were different manifestations of healing. We are called to pray. If you find somebody sick, you pray. Even if you get the sense that there's no way this person can make it, you still pray. And sometimes you will see the glory of God poured out. Alright, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. I want you to remember what it says. Jesus saw the crowd. Jesus gave orders to to his disciples to depart to go to the other side. It wasn't that the disciples departed on their own. Jesus gave orders for this to happen. Then a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air... Uh, And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. This is the cost of discipleship. So, what happened was a scribe comes running up to Jesus and says, You know, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Did you know that I have nowhere to lay my head? There is a cost of discipleship. There is not a huge cost on our part for salvation. Not a huge part at all. What we have to do is we have to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead and we shall be saved according to Romans chapter 10 verse 9. But to be His disciple, there is a cost of willingness to lay down our life. Without willingness to lay down our life, we are not disciples. Until we are willing to lay down our lives for Him. And that means we live for Him. We change if he, it, we, we pray and we commit our careers to Him and we'd be willing to modify our careers for His sake. We commit to Him things. This is the cost of discipleship. He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. You sure you want to be my disciple? Are you really sure? Look in, in, uh, in, in John chapter 12. I think this is, this is one of the most profound portions on the cost of discipleship. John chapter 12. Verse 23. Then Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come, John 12, 23, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But no, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. 
And a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. You see, what happens in this portion is Jesus makes a call to discipleship. He says, where I am, there shall my servant also be. Where was Jesus about to go? It says that his hour had come. He was about to go to the cross. If we are not willing to take it up, we are not worthy of him. He says, he who serves me must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And whoever serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor you if you serve Him. You want to receive honor from the Father? It is service to His Son. You want to receive honor from the Father? You are about His work. This is why I am so big on students being part of a campus group or, or, or part of a local church where they are serving actively. That you have some presence with the body of Christ serving Him. Because you want some role where you serve Him. All of us have different places. Some stand up on a stage and do things. Some set up chairs. Some work behind the scenes. Some work in the kitchen. But there must be some service to Him according to the gift that He has given you. And if you don't know the gift, then start trying different things until there's something that you find that you do really well. And then you will recognize the gift and you will find that you function in it fairly well also. It still may be hard, but it is something that you do fairly well. You must be active in serving Him. It is a cost of discipleship. And let me warn you also that many students get involved in campus ministry, but when they get out of school, they stop. They stop serving. Remember, when you become part of a local church, you take up service. And you lead your family in service in the body of Christ. When I did prison ministry for years, I couldn't bring my family into that situation. But on, on uh, Christmas and on Easter, we would have a service in the cafeteria and I could bring my family in. And I would have my little kids take plates and bring food to the men and serve them in their seats. I wanted them to learn service. We learn service. Don't stop learning service to the Lord. Don't stop learning how to serve others. This is what He's called us to. Whoever comes to me must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And whoever serves me, the Father will honor him. There is honor in serving God. If you serve God, He will honor you. He will honor you in your careers. You'll get promoted. You'll be put in positions that you feel totally inadequate for. But you'll be placed in positions higher and higher because of service to Him. If you serve God, He, the Father, will honor you if you serve Jesus. There is a cost in discipleship. And He says to this scribe, you want to follow Me? Just remember, I have no place to lay My head. It is different in serving Christ. The next verse, 21, Matthew chapter 8, verse 21. Another disciple said to Him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury My Father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Look what Jesus does. As opposed to the scribe, where he said, are you sure you want to go through with this? He says to this man, okay, follow me. The man said, you know, I'll, I'll follow you uh, um, wherever you go. But Jesus, Jesus said, he, but he, he, he said, let me, let me go bury my father first. 
His father was not dead. He wanted to go back to his family. He said, at another time I will follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. There is a time that we choose and it is now that we decide to serve Christ. If we say, well, when I get done with school, it will never happen. Trust me, it will never happen. I have seen boatloads of people that I have grown up with, that I graduated from school with, that I have seen as I taught in school. Look, I have never been outside the university. From, from the time I was 18, I've been in the university. I've never had a real job. I've been in the university my whole life. That's it. You know, they were asking me, what other positions have you held? And I said, that's it. I've only been in the university. I've never had a real job. This is all I've ever seen, but I've seen lots of students in my life. And many students feel, well, when I get done with school, then I will serve. And it doesn't happen. Well, when I, when I, when I get tenure, then I'll start serving God. You know, I'm really busy right now. Well, okay, and now I've got tenure, I'm associate professor. But when I'm a full professor, then I'll start serving God. And then you become a full professor and it takes a long time because God isn't blessing very much because you're not serving. And so, so you're now 50 and become a full professor. It's like... I'm too old to serve. You know? <laughs> I'm just kind of worn out. Plus, I'm too scared. You know? And because when you get older, you actually get more, more scared of things. You really do. This is, this is the, the most uh, a powerful time of your life in, 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 the, in the sense of you're being fearless. God has almost always, not in every case, but almost always called young people because they are fearless in comparison. Did you know the vast majority of terrorists the vast majority of terrorists are between the ages of 17 and about 26. Because in that time period, people are like, <laughs> you just go. You just absolutely go. And over 40, even in Israel, they don't worry about men over 40. Because when you get over 40, you don't want to hurt anybody. You just, you know, you, the, the whole perspective changes. And so this is the time that you should be most active in your lives and most willing to go forth. It doesn't get easier. It gets harder. You can get away with a lot. Just because you're young, people will cut you a lot of slack. And the example is, people run across campus naked and nobody does anything to them. I guarantee you, you graduate and get off that campus and run around naked and you are in big, big trouble. Alright? You can get away with a lot just because you're young. And you can say a lot of things and people will just say, well, you know, they're young and they'll let you go. This is the time you begin to serve Him. And He says, let the dead bury the dead. Don't get so involved with other things. I was talking with a young man last night, and I, was, I, I asked him a, a political question, and he said, you know, I don't get too involved in that. And I said, you know, I, I admire that. I really do. If God has called somebody to get involved in politics, that's great. But for the majority of believers, don't get too involved with it. Just continue on serving the Lord. And that was his motivation. And I, and I said, you know, I think that's a great answer. He says, I vote. You know, I'm involved to that extent, but I've got to move on and serve Christ. And that is a great answer. Let the dead bury the dead. You know, if you've got a calling to serve the Lord, use that calling. Serve Him in it. Alright, verse 23. When they got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. When He got into the boat, His disciples followed Who got into the boat first? Jesus and His disciples followed. In verse 18, Jesus gave orders, let's go out in this boat. Jesus was the one who told them to do this. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus Himself was asleep. 
And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And they were amazed, and they said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Look in in, uh, uh, Mark chapter 4, the parallel account. Mark chapter 4. You'll see what in desperate conditions they were. And remember, many of these disciples were fishermen. They're, they're not like you and me. You know, we go out on a little boat, we get scared because, you know, a little, you know, a two-inch wake starts. I mean, these guys were professional fishermen. They have lived out on the water. Verse, uh, um, verse 38. It, well, no, verse 37. Mark 4:37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So what was the condition of the boat? It was filling up. That means if it was uh, a foot and a half deep, the boat, it didn't just have half an inch of water in it. It was filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. How convenient. Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Remember, water is breaking over the boat, it said, in, in, in Matthew. So Jesus must have been wet. Alright, so the guy is getting covered with water. His feet and his legs are probably underwater. And he's still asleep. I mean, Jesus is really a calm guy. He doesn't get nervous very easily. He's just asleep. And he must have been awfully tired. Right, so uh, uh, turn, turn over to the other parallel account in Luke chapter 8. So three of the Gospels record this, this event. And, and, and I think the reason they record it is because it was really quite amazing what happens. Luke chapter 8, verse 23. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They were swamped in danger. You know what it means to have a boat that's swamped? It means the boat is full of water. And it means that the, the, the top of the boat is almost even with the, top, with the water because it's taken on so much water. And they came to Jesus and awoke Him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And He said to them, Where's your faith? You know, I have studied this portion for years and I'm always amazed at this. Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. What do you want from us? You want us to wait till the boat is going down and we're all swimming in the water? You want us to wait and, and then you can resurrect the boat from the bottom of this lake too? What do you want? You know, we're afraid if we didn't wake you up, then you'd say, why don't you wake me up? I mean, what do you want us to do here? This is kind of an odd situation. You know, they wake, they wake Jesus up there's, there's, there's fish swimming around in the boat. <laughs> there's, there's so much going on here. Because, you know, wherever Jesus was, the fish were coming. You know, we've seen this from other passages. And, and, and the boat's filling up, and Jesus looks at them. What's wrong with you guys? Why are you so afraid? Well, God, I mean, we're just drenched here. We can't get the water out of this boat very fast. And it wasn't as if they had done anything in disobedience. You can be walking in total obedience to the Lord. In fact, following His explicit command. And get in a real fix. 
you really can. It could be a real mess. And things could happen. And then Jesus says, He wants us to maintain faith. And in fact, He says, Why are you so without faith? Why are you so afraid? Jesus Himself drops us into situations in life that we have nothing to do with, has nothing to do with sin, but Jesus Himself puts us there. And then all this stuff comes upon us. And Jesus said, I want you to walk in faith. I want you to walk supernaturally. I actually think they did pretty well. I mean, maybe they could have rebuked the winds themselves. But to wake him up is a good, good thing to do, right? Imagine if they hadn't woken him up. He, he might have drowned. <laughs> this is late. Something really bad might have thought, happened to him. Who knows? I think it was pretty nice. If I was asleep back there, and the boat was taken on water like that, I'd appreciate being woken up, wouldn't you? But Jesus' response is so different. I can't figure the guy out sometimes. I really can't. Maybe you can. I can't figure out his response. But he calls us to walk in faith. You could be doing something so beautiful. One day, Shereen and I went to a, a, a New Year's Eve service. And I hate New Year's Eve services because I like to get to bed early because I like to wake up early. And if you stay up till midnight, then you, you, you know, it's just tough waking up early because you, it's just tough. And so anyway, we went to this New Year's Eve service and this was back in the days when I was younger and I was, I, it was harder for me to say no. Now I've learned very well how to say no. And I just say no, I'm not going to go. It doesn't make you happy. It's too bad. I'm not going to go. And, and, uh, but anyway, we came home from the service and we were staying in her brother's home. And, and uh, just disaster broke loose. Her brother wasn't yet home. And what happened is, is the toilet got clogged and it was just overflowing. And Shireen didn't want to wake me up because I had already gone to bed. And finally she woke me up. I said, oh, you, all you got to do is shut the water behind the tank. And so I ran over there and shut it. But by then water had spewed out all over the place. Well, this was on the second floor. And so the water goes down. And I said, we're cleaning it up and we get all these towels. And I'm thinking... I wonder if it's gone through. So I go downstairs and there's this stream of water coming down into the kitchen, through the cabinets, into the kitchen. And so I said, Shireen, you've got problems here. This is her brother's home, not our home, thankfully. <laughs> and, and so we're cleaning up all of this, this, the, these plates. You've got to wash the plates. This is bad water. I mean, you've got to wash the plates. And we're trying to get it all cleaned up. And then it's just as we're getting the kitchen cleaned up, I'm thinking... There is another floor below this. You know, this is, this is in New York, so they have these finished basements. And I said, not his newly finished basement. So I went down to the basement, and there's water coming down in a stream in this newly finished basement. And I'm thinking, and the, the ceiling, it had, had this blown ceiling. The ceiling had separated and was hanging down. <laughs> really quite amazing. And here it is, you know, like, one o'clock in the morning, a brother and his wife is, are still out. And, and I said to her, Shireen, I said, we did a good thing. This is a Christian service we went to. And now look at this disaster. And I remember, I said, Shireen, we really better pray here. We've destroyed his house. Maybe we should just shut the door and leave, go to a hotel or something. And so we got on our knees and prayed. And then, for some reason, I just said, let me see if I can fix the ceiling. And I just reached up and I pushed the ceiling and I held it for a minute 
and I let go, and it stuck up there, and you could hardly even see, there was just a barely faint visible seam. And I'm thinking, so we clean the whole house up, they get home, and we, you know, confess that there had been a flood, and they go, oh, we've had floods before, the girls used the shower, and it's flooded a little bit. And I said, actually, some of it actually came through, and they, they, we were standing in the kitchen at the time, and they looked around and said, ah, it looks fine to us. So I wasn't going to push it, you know, I mean, I did what I had to do. Every year I would go back there and I'd go to the basement and look at that ceiling. And the ceiling never moved. It never moved. It was just perfect year after year. And I asked him about it. I said, the ceiling here, is it done? Yeah, the ceiling's fine. What are you talking about? Oh, well. <laughs> you know, God, you can invite me to stay in your home sometime. But, but when we get into situations that are not a result of sin, we learn how to pray, and God blesses. He drops us into situations that cause us to cry out. Here I am, director of this carbon nanotechnology laboratory, and I feel totally inadequate. Why? Because everyone in there is doing something. 90% of the work in there has nothing to do with my background or training, and I'm sitting in there, and I'm listening to the person after person speak, and I'm thinking, what on earth are you talking about? I mean, there's some theory people. They hand me these pages. Look what we've done. It's just all these integrals. I haven't solved an integral since college. I have, I have people who do that for me. And, you know, they, they hand me this, and I'm supposed to analyze and say, oh, this is great work. Yeah, oh, you made a mistake right here. And, and I feel totally inadequate, but I know this is God. He drops us into situations, and I cry out like Solomon. Lord, I cannot handle these people. So, Lord, fill me and give me wisdom. God does this in our lives. And He says, you men of little faith. And He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. When you get dropped into situations that have nothing to do with sin, that you can't handle, remember, God says, why do you have such little faith? I've caused you to be in this situation. I commanded you to be here. Learn how to pray. Learn how to cry out to the Father. Learn how to deal with these things because of Him. And learn that He can take you on through. You will get into situations in your life and what He says is, learn how to pray. This is what He calls us to do. Let's pray.